Paul rejoices in the faithfulness and reward of the Philippian Christians with their God-pleasing sacrificial gifts as he speaks of his contentment in all circumstances so that we would trust God to supply all our needs for his glory. We often don't think about the reality that when God supplies our needs, it glorifies him. You ever think of it that way? That the needs that you have as you walk through your day, as you look at the desires of your children along as the actual needs of your children and your own and maybe other relatives, maybe you're trying to care for your parents, maybe you're trying to help those in your neighborhood, those in the workplace, as you think of those needs, it's crucial really to have a legitimate, spirit-filled, Christ-honoring mindset about the resources that he has entrusted you to manage, that in the same manner with which he supplies your needs, he glorifies himself. Isn't that great? When there is that equality between those two realities or equal fervor in God's heart, that for him to supply your needs is pleasing to him. But there's a formula for how that is actuated in a person's life. First, you need to know Christ. You need, even as Hannah so boldly declared this morning, to trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. And if there is any area in our culture where sin abounds, even is applauded, it's the area of finances. You know, pouring money into things. Some things which are intrinsically evil. But even those things that are not, and the Bible calls it idolatry. Modernly, we call it materialism. But it's the same thing. Being more concerned with having the new car rather than investing in heaven. By the way, there's nothing wrong with having a new car. But when that becomes the focus, when that becomes the deepest desire, as opposed to storing up treasure in heaven, then it's time for some dear brotherly or sisterly soul to step into your life and say, hey, let's talk about this. Is that really what matters? Is that really what you need? So this morning, I'm going to go ahead and give you the four points, and then we'll work through them. Number one, I want you to see the planned or revived concern for Paul's needs. The planned, or in parenthesis there, revived concern for Paul's needs. That's point number one. Number two, we're going to look at the progressive or learned contentment in Paul's heart. This increasing or progressive, what he calls learned contentment in his heart. Point number three, I want you to see the proportionate credit for Paul's partners or comparable credit, comparable to that which they give. It's a proportionate credit. And then number four, we're going to look at the plentiful or abundant supply for Paul and his partners in ministry. Plentiful or abundant supply for him and those who supported him. Well, point number one, this planned concern for Paul's needs. You might think of it as a premeditated concern. It didn't just pass by them and they said, hey, why don't we get involved in that? There was a deliberate effort on their part to minister to Paul tangibly. But he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And you don't want to minimize this phrase. There are three elements to this phrase, as you can see there. First, he says, I rejoiced. And this obviously speaks of Paul's joy 
over the Philippian Christians having revived their concern for him in a tangible way that results in his great supply, but much more important in their spiritual credit. But, the, but he also says that he rejoiced in the Lord. And so this means that he can say this with confidence that his joy is from the Lord or it is a joy that is of the Lord. It's a godly joy. His rejoicing is pure because the joy stems from something that glorifies and pleases the Lord. He says in verse 18 that he is well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he rejoiced in the Lord, but he also says he rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And this is an adverb that modifies his rejoicing maximally in a megalo kind of way. The Greek term is megalos, and it means extraordinarily or exceedingly or greatly. And obviously we get our term mega from this term. Paul mega rejoiced in this. In what did he rejoice? Well, that now at length, that term length there is a term that literally means ever or already, meaning indefinitely. It happened, it's the aorist tense, it happened, but not just once, but in a continuing or an ongoing manner. It wasn't just one gift. It was a concern that permeated their hearts in an elongated way. So he didn't just rejoice in the Lord greatly over the gift, but over the fact that the gift was a repeated offering. And it was at length that you have revived your concern for me. This was a deliberate, planned, intentional effort to act on their concern, which, by the way, never died, because he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. They cultivated the concern. They caused it to grow, to shoot up as a budding shoot nurtured unto full blossom. Their generous support a decade earlier enabled Paul, upon leaving Philippi, to minister in Thessalonica and Berea, and then they supported him in Athens and Corinth, as recorded in Acts 17 and 18. And we don't know why Paul says that they had no opportunity, but he does say it. It could perhaps be as a result of their deep and extreme poverty, as recorded in 2 Corinthians 8. But regardless, now they have renewed this opportunity. They've renewed the concern by sending multiple substantial gifts to him through Epaphroditus. And so it was a planned concern. It was a methodical effort on their part. They knew Paul. They loved Paul. Paul was their spiritual father in most cases. And so it was a deliberate prayerful effort to think through how they would give to Paul's ministry. Point number two, it is a progressive learned contentment that we see in Paul's heart. It's a progressive one, and that's true with you, is it not? Yeah, what are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual growth, you know? As you grow in Christ, you grow in humility, you grow in love, you grow in compassion. You know, maybe when you first became a Christian, you weren't very compassionate, or you weren't very patient, or you weren't very kind. 
And so, you know, maybe someone would look at you and say, I'm not sure if you're a Christian. And the right answer to that would be, well, my hope is in the cross and the resurrection, and I'm trusting God to change me. That's a progressive work. It's a learned reality. This is not simply true with contentment. It's true with all the spiritual gifts. You learn. Paul testifies here to the fact that he learned this matter of contentment. And he talks about the experiential reality during which he examines it all through the grid of Scripture. You've often heard me say, you don't want your experience to be the foundation of your theology, but you certainly want your experience to be the vehicle wherein your theology is learned. There's a big difference there. Some folks have confused the two. You know, we want to learn from our experience. It's not a bad phrase, so long as what you mean by that is that you're looking at your experience through the grid of Scripture. You're thinking theologically. And that's, of course, what Paul does here. In verse 11, he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul points out that he's not talking about his need or his condition of having a need. It's really a non-issue here. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. He's not saying he did not or does not have a need at this point. He's simply saying his need is not his point. His point is, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. For him to say, I've learned in whatever situation, says this was a progressive or learned contentment in his heart. He is satisfied. His situation does not dictate his contentment or his joy. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I know how to be brought low. I know how to endure. I know how to experience hunger. I know how to experience need. The idea here is to have humble means, but also to have a happy mind. To know severe poverty with satisfied pleasure. To know financial destitution with fearless delight. To have the pocketbook of a beggar, but the pleasure of a barren. To be socially second rate, but spiritually satisfied. That's the idea. It's God's perspective on these things. Paul embraced that perspective. Paul also knew something of financial wealth. He says, I've not only learned the secret of being hungry and having need, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing abundance. What does he mean by that? He means that he didn't embrace the idolatry of those around him. He means that in plenty, he didn't misuse the plenty. He didn't say, wow, we've got a windfall, let's go on a vacation. Nothing wrong with going on vacation, by the way, but I'm just trying to give you the spirit of Paul's heart here, that the first thought in his heart was, I need to know how to be content in all circumstances, no matter what they are, whether I have much or little. It's important that I have God's perspective on my situation. 
This was a progressive or learned contentment in Paul's heart. He says in verse 11 that he had learned in whatever situation to be content, to be satisfied. And then as you know in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see that he's not talking about having self-confidence to win that coveted job or to win that relationship. He's certainly not talking about winning a football game. Every time I hear a famous athlete quote this passage, I want to say, so tell us about your poverty and the deep-seated contentment you've learned through it. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I hate the burst, the bubble of those who think you've been using that passage appropriately, you know, every time you get stuck in a traffic jam or, you know, you have a difficult issue at work or you're lifting weights. It's not what he's talking about. That is a major misapplication. This could be the most misunderstood Bible verse in America after John 3.16, but not for Christians who are legitimately experiencing severe affliction. You know, as a young man, I memorized this passage with a misguided effort to use it for physical strength for football and for work. I got our tractor stuck on the front patio one day. My mom came out to ask what was happening while I was in the middle of saying, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. As I tried to lift the back of the tractor up off the patio, I eventually did it, gave credit to God, you know, thought I was witnessing to my mom. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Spiritual strength rests on the foundation of acknowledging weakness, not calling upon God for physical strength by misusing a passage of Scripture with which he is attempting to address the ability to be content in all things, either poverty or riches. You know, it's a saying around here that you don't want to miss the point of the passage. The worst thing about getting an interpretation wrong is that you don't get it right. And therefore, you don't benefit from what's actually being said. When we talk about being able to do all things in Christ Jesus who strengthens us, it's important that we look at it in the context in which it was written. Can you say that today, that you are learning this contentment, that you're experiencing this contentment progressively. You're more content today than you were a year ago. Or have you regressed? Have you been sucked back into American materialism that causes you to think, I, I need better stuff, I need newer stuff? Sometimes you need new stuff. Or maybe you need used stuff that's better than the stuff that you have because the stuff you have has fallen apart. We're not talking about living in such a way that makes no sense to where you can't do the things that you need to do. But to have the perspective from the Lord is what we're talking about. 
Do you think those Christians in Hebrews 11 thought that this meant they could overcome all societal adversity and have lots of financial prosperity or win Olympic track and field events or gain favor with the government? Hebrews 11.35 says, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. There's a modern earthly illustration of this in the person of John McCain, who when he was in prison as a prisoner of war, refused to be released, although his father, being an officer in the military, meant that he could. He chose to stay there with the prisoners of whom he was imprisoned. Those who were tortured, refusing to accept release, did so like many Christians in our day are doing in the Middle East. I've read article after article of young Christians who have refused to abandon their faith, who have refused to reject Jesus Christ, who have refused to claim the name of Muhammad and embrace Islam because Christ is truly important to them. Do you think for those folks, verse 13 means I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to win some kind of athletic pseudo-pretend battle? Of course not. Now, I'm grateful for those who are of the Christian faith, who play professional sports, who are doing what they can in their level of maturity to honor the Lord with how they conduct themselves. Those are diamonds in the rough. Praise God for those folks. But for you and me and for all Christians, it's important that we understand that what Paul's talking about here is contentment. Contentment with little or contentment with much. See, Paul was saying that whether in poverty or in prosperity, he had learned to be content. This was the learned contentment in Paul's heart. Point number three, I want you to see the proportionate or comparable credit for Paul's partners. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. The Philippian Christians embraced Paul and his ministry while he endured affliction In his poverty, but also in theirs, they shared his trouble. They shared his affliction. They endured with him. This is somewhat similar to what Paul is talking about to us in the book of Galatians when he talks about bearing one another's burdens. It's different there because Paul is talking about bearing the burden of sin. But the mindset is the same, that we're really connected to one another. You can't do that as the person who says, I'm committed to the body of Christ, but is not committed to a local church. That's utterly impossible. And you say, well, I've got good friends in the workplace. You know, we have Bible studies and things together. That's not the church. You say, they're members of the universal church. I mean, really? I mean, who's your pastor? Your boss? You know, you've got to have all the elements of a New Testament church in order for this to be displayed properly for God's glory. And the Philippian Christians understood this. It was in their poverty that they endured with him. They understood one another. They understood one another's giftedness. They nurtured one another's spiritual gifts for the greater good of the body of Christ, for the common good of the body, that they would all grow up into the head who is Christ. They endured the affliction with him. While they had little and he had little, 
They display the contentment of the Christians in Jerusalem in Acts 2, verses 44 to 45, who were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is why we have family groups. You can't get grafted into a local body if you're not regularly engaging with a smaller group of people. Our church is not large, comparatively speaking, to those that you see on the internet. But our church is too large for you to say, I've got vibrant relationships with everybody at the Anchor Bible Church. But you can, and I hope you would say, I've got vibrant relationships with 12 or 15 people with whom I pray deeply every two weeks under the care of a man who shepherds that smaller flock within our larger flock. I'm committed to that. When I first came to this church, my schedule was so difficult I couldn't do it, but I've prayed and the Lord has enabled us to have that kind of deep love and involvement in believers' lives that is required in the New Testament. There are no options. You say, I don't see the word family group in the Bible. Right, that's our modern label for the church. You cannot grow spiritually without it. And at the point where you think you are, you're fooling yourself. Why in the world would you give to a local church where you don't know somebody in leadership and know them well? Chances are you would say, well, I wouldn't. Right, I wouldn't either. But it's not that you don't have every opportunity to get to know someone on the ground floor of our leadership. These people knew Paul. They knew his heart. They knew his consistency. They knew his faithfulness. They knew his willingness to repent for sin. They knew his honesty. They knew his integrity. They knew his evangelism. They knew his teaching. And because they did, they could support him and they could do it wholeheartedly. Same with those Jerusalem Christians. They were able to sell their own goods. By the way, I'm hearing of some of you doing that after this study we've been doing. We have a garage sale coming up in April to get our kids to Camp Region. You know, last year, I think it was $1,200 that we made in one garage sale that gave a major boost to those young folks who need help to get to Camp Region, which is an important ministry or sub-ministry of our, of our ministries. Praise God that you're thinking along those lines. And praise God that you're, you'll be able to get your car in your garage after doing that too, right? For the first time in a few years. In verse 15 of our text, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, Paul gives no indication that he's speaking critically or negatively of these other churches. He's just stating a fact. He's just pointing out the reality that they were the one church. But in God's sovereignty, it would appear, in fact, it's pretty obvious that the Lord used exactly what they gave, and it was exactly what Paul needed even more. When Paul first displayed a commitment to Christ and to his gospel, first efforts at preaching the gospel, the church at Philippi was the only church at the time who assisted him. There was not only a giving, but also a receiving between Paul and this local church. He could have said what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 
For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. He's pointing to them that when a man does his work, he needs to be paid. And he's using this text with the Corinthians who had theological slash spiritual slash real life issues that he was addressing, and this is one of them. He's telling them, you're not going to steal food from the ox who does his work, are you? Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul speaking as a pastor to the flock in Corinth. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, yeah, Paul certainly should have been remunerated by the church in Corinth. He also could have said here to the Philippians what he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. But he didn't. He didn't say that to them. Instead, he commended them for their generosity in their poverty. And as your pastor, I commend you for your generosity. We are blessed. My family is blessed in more ways than I can recount. And as I was up here studying last night, I sent a text to my wife. And I said, I just can't imagine how blessed we are in our family and in so many ways. But literally just six years ago, we had no idea what our future would be. And here we are. And really, I I could and I did say this just, just two or three months into our church plant. You know, we've never gone without a paycheck. You have supported us faithfully all along the way. We've never had some kind of financial issue that was the result of being underpaid. I certainly experienced that in the past, as I'm sure all of you have in some job somewhere. But I, like Paul to the Philippians, can commend you for your generosity. Some of you in your poverty, for sure. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. So as we talked about earlier, this is a lengthy gift. That's his word. It's an elongated gift. It's a perpetual gift. It's a gift that's not constricted. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, speaking to the Thessalonians, our labor and toil... We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And so there was no remuneration from the Thessalonian church to Paul. Some of that, as he mentions here, was because he was a tent maker. He worked on his own to supply finances for himself. But also he was receiving money from the Macedonian churches, specifically from Philippi. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
So while defending his faithfulness to the wayward Christians in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Why does he use the term robbed there? I mean, he wasn't stealing money. He wasn't taking money. His point was to say that while in God's sovereignty this was used for his glory and for my remuneration and it worked out well, but you should have been supporting me. There's a sense in which more money was taken from that church for me that should have come from you while I was ministering to you. He says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 11, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, the boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Again, the context of 2 Corinthians 11, that's that chapter where he you know, repeatedly points them to the reality of his character in light of false teachers telling lies about him, making false accusations about him. So he commends them for their gifts, the Philippians, but that's not the point. It's not the point. In verse 17 of our text, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's really not saying, thank you so much for the gift. Typically, when I write a thank you note, if you've ever gotten a thank you note from me, you've probably noticed that I probably wasn't thanking you. I'm thankful for you, and I may say thank you to you hopefully many times. But typically when I'm writing a thank you note, I'm thinking of the reality that you do what you do because God has placed it on your heart. And so God gets the credit. And so I'm, I'm praising the Lord in that note, thanking Him by way of communicating that to you. That what the Lord has done, the Lord gets credit for. So Paul's not writing this flowery, poetry-filled letter to the Philippians saying, man, you guys are great. No, he's saying, praise God for your faithfulness that God initiated in you. It's for their better spiritual and eternal good for which he rejoices. In fact, he seeks it. What does he seek? The fruit that increases to your credit. I love teaching this. You see how the pressure is totally off me to get you to give more money? It's just not in my heart. It's certainly not in the text of Scripture for me to tell you to give more or whatever. It's just in the text of Scripture to point out the reality that what I am to seek as a shepherd, the shepherds of our church are to seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So the faithful messenger of God is the one who simply tells you what Scripture says without putting some manipulative sort of you know, 10% kind of giving mandate on you. It's their eternal reward. That's what he seeks. This is in the spirit of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal 
For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Philippian Christian's heart was with Paul's ministry because Paul's ministry was resoundingly eternal. The effect of Paul's ministry was not that he had some kind of persuasive speech. You know that. Paul says, I didn't come to you with eloquence of speech. He came with the power of the gospel. Many of you would attest that for the first time in your life, the Lord started to do a significant work in your life, in our church, because we've endeavored to just keep things down to the simplicity of the gospel and not do something that's going to draw in more and more people and make it more fun and more flowery and more comedic. I've often quoted Mark Dever, and I think it's appropriate to do it here, to say, what you win them with is what you must keep them with. And so when someone gets locked by the gospel, when someone finds himself endeared to Christ, and he has this burning passion for being less like self and more like Christ, and he's more committed to exposing his own sin than he is exposing the sins of others. You know, he receives a criticism, and he takes it. Instead of saying, well, I don't know how that could possibly be true. I couldn't possibly be like that. I can't believe that person said that about me. He understands that the power of the gospel gives a person a willingness to say, you know what, I need correction. I need instruction, and I need to receive it. And I need to change. I need God to change me, to do a vast and permeating work in me. You see, if you're heart is in heaven. Your treasure is in heaven. If your heart is committed to that which is eternal, you know, eating at your favorite restaurant four times a week is not an option. Now, I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm simply saying that's no longer what you want to do. Because every time you spend 40 bucks on a meal, you're thinking, I could have eaten for $2 at Carl's or wherever. Now listen, I'm not telling you to stop eating good food and stop eating expensive food. That's not the point. Don't allow yourself to boil this down to some legalistic accusation. I'm simply trying to provide real-life examples for you where you, you know, and I know too, in our lives there have been plenty of times where we have bypassed an eternal perspective and said, you know, I just want my belly full. When it comes to idolatry, the, the concept is that one's belly is his God. He doesn't want to just be full. He wants the absolute best. So he's going to spend a lot of money on it. That's okay every now and then. The extravagant gift that Mary poured out on Jesus' feet, I think, is an example of that. We're to be generous in how we give to others. We're to be generous and lavish in how we provide for others. But don't let this be an either-or perspective where you say, you know, it's my money, I'm going to spend it on what I want. Or, on the other hand, you take this perspective that says, I must spend every penny on specific ministry that is church-approved. You know, that's, that's scary. You know, how are you going to do that anyway? The idea has to be that you're thinking eternally and you're letting God drive your heart. You know, MacArthur wrote a great little book called Found God's Will. I think it's the best thing written on decision-making because it's not about decision-making. It's about trusting Christ. 
This is kind of a side note here, but I think very important, especially when it comes to the matter of how much you're going to give. We talked much about that in the treasure principle study, and I'm going to deal more with that when we look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But how much you give to the Lord really shouldn't come so much down to decision-making. You say, well, how do you do it without making a decision? I'm not saying you don't. I'm saying don't let it be about that. Let how much you give be a natural byproduct of how much you love Christ. Now, don't let that be manipulative. I don't mean it that way. I remember one guy who used to say, if you don't love, don't give. This is not a manipulative concept. That is. What we're saying is, to the degree that you understand and enjoy Jesus Christ to be that indescribable gift, let that influence how you give. That doesn't mean that if someone else is giving more than you are, that they love Christ more. The point is that you want your giving to be a byproduct of the fact that Christ loves you. He gave his life for you. He granted you eternal life. He's given you everything you have. It's all his. So cut out a portion. As Tim Chalice has said, it ought to be enough that it matters. It ought to hurt a little bit. The result ought to be that you would say, man, because we gave, we couldn't have this luxury. That's what it ought to look like. In our uh, discussion group yesterday morning, in the final session of the treasure principle, when I asked the men how the study had affected their thinking and living about giving, Ben Gonzalez, in his very thoughtful, methodical way, said, well, I have some things that have a lot of rust. And I have some other things that have been eaten by moths. And recently, I had some things stolen. And I've asked, how much of this am I going to take with me anyway? So I'm thinking more about getting rid of more things and giving more toward eternity. It's the practical application of that exact text. All of us have things that have rust somewhere, or have had. Things that have been eaten by moths, probably. I can remember the first time I pulled something out of the closet when I was a kid, and it had holes in it. And I wanted to go find who you know, took a knife to my shirt. <laughs> who did this? And my mom said, ah, <laughs> let me explain that to you. This concept is well-boiled in Luke 6, beginning with verse 37, where Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. See, in the context of the critical matter of judgment, condemnation, forgiveness of sins, Jesus speaks of the comparable or proportionate principle behind giving and 
receiving. A blind man can't follow a blind man. Faithful people need to be taught faithfully. He says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So we're back to that idea that this is not so much about an exact decision, although you need to get to that exact decision at some point. But if you're hyper-focused on the exact amount before you actually embrace this idea that the measure you use is the measure with which it will be given back to you, then you're going to stretch. You're going to say, how much more can we give because we want it to be stored up in heaven? We want to have more money so that we can give more money. Not necessarily for those materialistic items that ultimately will rust or be eaten by moths or may actually be stolen. My car keys were stolen a few weeks ago in the parking lot here. I was thanking the Lord that nobody was in the car when the person got in the car to get the keys. And you might be wondering, why didn't they steal the car? I don't know, but I'm glad they didn't. God's grace was written all over this. You know, we've been praying for an opportunity to minister to that person. We saw him on the surveillance camera, so I think I've seen him a couple of times. I've actually talked to the person that I think did it. It's hard to tell from the surveillance camera. But my wife keeps reminding me, you know, we need to be praying for opportunities to share the gospel with him. Wouldn't that be great? Do the car keys really matter? Well, it was a pretty significant inconvenience, but it was a much smaller inconvenience than it would have been if he had taken the car. There's lots to thank the Lord for in that situation. See, in this context, this context of uh, back to the passage we just read from Luke 6, this parable, in this context of judgment, condemnation, and forgiveness, we read... If you do not judge, you will not be judged. If you don't condemn, you won't be condemned. But we read, if you forgive, you will be forgiven. We also read that as you measure it, it will be measured back to you. As in our passage last week in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Luke 16, 10, you remember, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And then this interesting shift, Jesus says, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Watch yourself with regard to little things that you might twist or color or deceive over. The person who does that is the person who will be dishonest in much. The person who is faithful in little is the person who is faithful in much. Jesus goes on to say, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, right, that which you get from your secular employer, that unrighteous wealth, meaning there's nothing pure or holy about it, it's not given to ministry, it's not given eternally, if you're not faithful in that, who will entrust to you the true riches? You get the idea here? If you have not been faithful to give as expressed in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, joyously, giving out of your need but beyond your need, giving sacrificially, regularly, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. If that is not what you have been given, there's no reason to think that you have anything stored up in heaven 
including a place to stay. No servant can serve two masters, Jesus said. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Back in verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, it's just another way of saying, if you haven't given faithfully to that which is eternal, then why would something eternal be given to you and not only the rewards in heaven, but the reward of heaven itself? So Paul was pleased for his partners in ministry to receive a proportionate or a comparable gift, comparable to that which they gave. He was pleased for them to receive the fruit that increases to their credit. It's powerful, isn't it? Really ought to just kind of with a power punch modify our thinking greatly about our giving. Well, point number four. I want you to see the plentiful or abundant supply for Paul and his partners. He says in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul speaks of his abundance, but also that of those who gave to him out of affliction and poverty. I received full payment, he says. Oh, and more. I'm well supplied, having received the gifts that you sent with Epaphroditus. Verse 19, he says, my God will supply every need. He testifies that God has supplied his every need, and he ensures the Philippians that he will supply their every need. But more than that, he says he is well supplied. Well supplied for Paul meant more than just having more than enough to pay his bills. The issue was that he had received from Epaphroditus the gifts they sent, which were a fragrant offering. They were a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This terminology is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, which says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is a blessing that is directly comparable to the gift of the sacrificial offering. You say, well, how can God be sovereign then? Because he says he is all throughout his word. And well within his sovereignty is this latitude with which we can and really must. We are commanded to subject ourselves to the greater blessings of enjoying more riches because we're willing to give it all to the Lord, to obey him in our offering. This was a fragrant offering to the Lord. 
The idea is similar to that which you enjoy when you walk into your home or into a restaurant or like we're walking down the street and we smell something that says we kind of got to eat there. It's an enjoyable aroma. It brings about God's full pleasure because it's full obedience to him. It's a metaphor. You understand what a good smell does. And so God uses this terminology to help you understand just how pleasing obedience is to him. That it is acceptable and pleasing to God sounds a lot like Leviticus 19.5. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. The mindset in the Old Testament of giving an offering has not changed for the New Testament era in terms of what's behind it. The impetus behind the offering is that it would be pleasing to the Lord and that the Lord would return favor to the one who brings the offering. You probably are thinking of Romans 12 right now, verse 1, that speaks of the New Testament mindset toward being a living sacrifice. Dead sacrifices were offered up in the Old Testament system. But Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you're living your life as a sacrifice. And of course, your resources, those resources that God has entrusted to you are a direct manifestation of whether or not you're living a holy life. And like we've talked about a number of times, you can't compartmentalize obedience. You can't compartmentalize sin. If there's vast sin in one area of your life, just because you think you're being faithful in another, that sinful area is going to permeate and greatly affect and mitigate your productivity in those other areas. And when it comes to being faithful to Christ, you can't say, well, I've got you know, nine out of the 12 areas in order, if there are 12. And we talk about the spiritual disciplines, there are many. But you can't say, you know, that whole matter of giving, I'm thinking about it. It's pleasing to God when you offer up a living sacrifice. And when your life is a living sacrifice, the result will be that you will want to give to effective ministry. In Hebrews 13, 15, it says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That common and beautiful phrase, that matter of being a, a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. But that sacrifice of praise to the Lord is impotent if it's not parallel to the matter of giving a sacrificial offering. 1 Peter 2 verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Your financial giving is a spiritual sacrifice. You're choosing to do without something so that you could invest eternally. So Paul, as we said here, speaks of the plentiful or abundant supply, not only for himself, but also those who partnered with him 
But that plentiful, abundant supply is an expression of God's desire to give credit, that's the word Paul uses, back to the giver. It's an eternal credit. It's comparable. It's proportionate to your earthly giving. In verse 19 then, to kind of close this up, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You've heard the phrase, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's a lot of cattle. And when you think about your needs, what you ought to be thinking is that God will supply my needs if I am faithful to him. You know, don't be the person who says, you know, we got a really rough thing going on in our life, so, you know, we can't be involved in discipleship right now. We'll just have to put that off for a few months. You can't be involved in your family group setting, ministering with other people, because we just got too much going on. You know, the worship service, we'll do our best to get there some of the time. You know, giving, yeah, I don't know, we'll see in time, but right now things are really hard. See, you're cutting yourself off at the knees. You're really hanging yourself. You're really damaging your own spiritual growth, but your own spiritual reward. Think of God's perspective. If, By the way, the messenger of these truths from Scripture is someone with whom you have some sort of a hang-up, then just read what the Bible says. Understand this, my God will supply your every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let me just tell you that that is an immeasurable amount of eternal riches. Solomon, the most wealthy man in the world, wouldn't have provided a drop in the bucket for all of the eternal riches that we have in Jesus Christ. But think of it this way. Every time you invest in eternal ministry, you bring increase to those riches. You play a role. You have an opportunity to do that now that you won't in heaven. God gives us the blessing and the privilege of being engaged in that way. And then he says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Interesting way to end a discussion on the matter of being supplied plentifully and being thankful for the credit given back to the giver. The obvious reality here is that those who have a good handle, they have a legitimate understanding of how this works, are people in whose lives God's glory is on display. And don't be fooled into thinking this is something you can fake. Right? You can't pretend to be a mature Christian successfully if you're not giving faithfully. God's glory will be on display in your life as you are faithful in all the disciplines of the Christian faith. See, this really comes down to your view of Jesus Christ. Do you view him as the indescribable gift. You can describe your gifts. I can describe mine. I get a thing at the end of the year that, you know, I don't even have to describe it. It's right there. You can't describe Jesus Christ, not in full. He's the inexpressible gift. John MacArthur said, a confident trust in God's providence is foundational to contentment. More and more and more. So many of you have come to me in certain dire situations and you've used this word, sovereignty. As you have increased in your understanding of sovereignty, you've grown not to reject it, 
but to love it. Be certain that the person who rejects God's sovereignty is a person who will not have a handle on his finances. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Because you can't imagine that if God is not sovereign, that somehow you will get back more than what you gave. But as you grow in your understanding of his sovereign grace, you will say, wow, the more I give to legitimate ministry, the more the Lord will bless me in the here and now, but especially eternally. After the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 10, Paul says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your increase. He then says in verse 15, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He talks about that relationship, that comparable reality between the gift and the return. Your view of Christ really is the issue. I think there's no better place to end than in Matthew 6, which tells us from the words of our Savior, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's so often the argument. But we've got this, we've got that, we don't have this, we need this. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When I was in seminary, I didn't have much money. I worked. I did what I could. You know, seminary is expensive. and trying to live as inexpensively as I can. And uh, my commitment was to give faithfully as I thought I could. And um, one day my car wouldn't start, and that was the end of it. And um, I was in the accountant's office in, in our church, and I said to him, I know that you know a lot of people. Is it possible that you might be able to help me find an inexpensive vehicle? And when I said inexpensive, I meant free. <laughs> because I didn't have any money. I had no idea, but I thought, I'll figure it out. I'll do something. Maybe I'll work for it. So he called me the next day, and he said, hey, Todd, I just want you to know. I mean, this was a day later, less than 24 hours. I just want you to know I've got a car for you. I said, oh, okay, well, where do I go to look at it? And he gave me the address, and he said, the owner won't be there, but you know, the keys are on the tire. You can look at it. 
And, uh, and I said, okay, well, um, if I like it, you know, how much is it? And he said, Todd, did you not hear what I said? I have a car for you. Whew. Man, I'd never experienced anything on that level. So I went to the guy's house, and it was under a tarp next to a tree. It had been sitting there for a while, and it was a pretty decent car. It started. <laughs> that was infinitely better than what I had. And it was free. And um, I was able to remain debt-free at that time and continue in seminary and you know, work as much as I could I was with my buddy Todd Stanton, who many of you have heard me talk about, and I picked him up for lunch, and uh, he said, this is the car you got? And I said, yeah, and he goes, dude, you scored. <laughs> and I realized then it was, it was actually a pretty decent car. Now, just so you know, it lasted exactly one year, but by God's grace, I had saved up enough money that I was able to buy another vehicle with cash at that point, and it wasn't much better, but it started. You see, the Lord provides exactly what you need, and many times he provides more. When you're thinking about the fact that you know, we just don't have anything to give, it's important that you start thinking through where your money goes. I've told you on March 12th, we're going to display our church finances to you, and we're going to talk about some things that we hope to do. You know, Already, in light of this study that we've been doing on managing God's treasure, you have responded, as you always do, under the teaching of God's Word. Um, there was a meeting yesterday here to discuss what we're going to do in June when our lease is up. Are we going to stay here? Are we going to get another suite? Are we going to move somewhere? We're praying about that. We've got to figure that out. But let me tell you something. The only way that we could even stay just where we are without expanding is we need more money. Our budget is committed. Every dollar is committed to current ministry. Let the Lord's blessing us because you are responding to his call upon your life to be faithful and to be obedient. And it's just a joy. It's just a joy to be involved with you in eternal ministry. Let's go to the Lord now and be specific, shall we? Let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom, give us humility, give us the ability to partner together in eternal ministry by being faithful in the area of managing his treasure. Father, we rejoice with you. We are grateful for your great kindness, your immeasurable kindness to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for your immeasurable love for us that is manifest in your willingness to crush your son. The prophet Isaiah tells us that it pleased you to crush him, and so we think by no means that that means you took some sort of morbid joy in the execution of your son. But it pleased you because it meant redemption. It meant the certain redemptive reality that all those who would trust in Christ would have forgiveness of sins, they would experience repentance, and they would experience the eternal joy of enjoying the rewards stored up in heaven by your sovereign kindness. Lord, help us as a local church to be faithful to you and to our local church that you might use us maximally for your glory and for the good of those to whom we hope to minister. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.